Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada. And it's a snowy Ontario. It looks like we're getting our last blast of winter and we're well into spring. And we have another episode of the Yakking podcast for you. This is the place we talk about life, business and more. And we bring you tips and ideas for a changing world. Uh, we don't have any other guests today, but I'm the guest for a change, and Kathleen is going to ask me about parts of my life where I overcame some fairly difficult circumstances and extreme adversity, and we thought this was pretty topical for the situation we're in right now in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. So over to you. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you, Peter, and welcome to all our listeners and viewers. It's good to have you. And and yes, what we wanted to do today was a little bit different. We wanted to uh, bring you some stories that Peter has. And, and in fact, he's written a book, and it's, it's right here. It's Five Steps to Thriving on Adversity. And Peter has a lot of, goes into a lot of compelling events that have occurred throughout his life in Africa. As more specifically Zimbabwe. And uh, there is one event in particular, maybe a couple of events in particular that um, he touches on in his book. But I, I was wondering if perhaps he could share with us some of the details um, surrounding these events. And they are absolutely traumatic. I don't know how anybody overcomes that. And maybe you never overcome these kinds of traumas. You just learn to cope and move on. Um, and we're going to talk to Peter a little bit about that. Peter, the two events that come to mind in this particular book are, really surround what happened with your parents. And I know this is just, just absolutely uh, devastating. And um, perhaps you can go into some detail first about what happened to your mom. And then what happened to your dad? And maybe give us a little bit of the background as to what led up to that. So you go ahead, Peter. Tell okay, me. sure, Kathleen. Um, so before I get into the story, let, let me just say, people say, that must have been terrible. And how did you overcome it? We were in a, a period in our country where the violence and the, the evil, for want of a better term, came on gradually. And it, it was incremental. It didn't all happen overnight. And unfortunately, um, I think it's human nature and it's a survival mechanism. We tend to adjust to incremental violence and get used to it and, and in incremental difficult circumstances. So, but to get back to the story of what happened, um, Rhodesia, as it was at the time in 1978, was in the terrorist war. You know, I don't need to go into the political background of all that. That's a subject for another time. Uh, the terrorist activity was quite severe, but it wasn't causing much damage to the military or the establishment of Rhodesia. It was the casualties were, were mainly innocent black tribal people who were being intimidated and murdered by the terrorists. Plus they were attacking missions and schools. And that was going on practically all over the, around the perimeter of the country with isolated incidents in the interior. And my parents had retired from farming. My dad was, I think he was 66 at the time. And they had moved to a, a mountainous area on the Mozambique border near the village of Penalonga, where my dad had got a job as a water bailiff. 
and essentially he controlled or he recorded the inflows from rivers into a, a dam or reservoir as we call it a lake and the outflow and at that dam or lake was the main water supply for the city of Mutari, a city of probably 400 500,000 people it was a really good job for him after the hard life of farming and he had about two hours work a day and he spent the rest of the time bass fishing on the lake so it was great uh, they had a comfortable little house, so it was much easier for my mum than the old farmhouse they'd lived in previously. Uh, it had a really good security fence around it. He was issued with a, a government uh, semi-mindproof Land Rover, and uh, he had guns, and he kept his eyes open, and he'd fought in the Second World War. So things were going quite well, but unfortunately for them, their house was, or the, the lake was right next to a main incursion route for the tourists going backwards and forwards to Mozambique, uh, where Mozambique had the Frelimo regime had taken over after the coup in Portugal and was obviously a, a, a refuge for these tourists. So in uh, August 1979, I'd moved to South Africa in 1978 with my family because I could see no future in Rhodesia. And in August 1979, my mum and dad had been down to the city of Amtali uh, to go to the country show, which we'd call a fair here, I guess. And they left early because it wasn't advisable to be on the road when it was late. And uh, August is uh, late winter in uh, Zimbabwe, in the Southern Hemisphere. And they were driving home. But because my dad had a bad back and he found the Land Rover very heavy to drive in traffic, uh, they'd gone in their personal little Renault 4 car and my mother was driving and they were on their way home and they were on on the road. It was pretty remote. There were no other cars around and they were ambushed by nine terrorists with AK-47s opened up on them from the side of the road. And uh, my mother was hit through her right thigh, shattered her hip bone and uh, the bullet came out on her left side and embedded into the back of my dad's seat. Um, one bullet went through the right hand front tire, blew that out. Uh, I think all the wind, all the glass was shattered, and a bullet went into the ignition coil. So the car stopped. But because the right hand tire was blown, and because in Rhodesia we drove on the left, it, the car veered across the road to the other side, and there was a bit of a cutting there. So they were then sheltered from the the fire from the terrorists. So my dad got out of the car and he had an Uzi 9mm submachine gun that he carried. He ran up the road to get a clear view of the tourists and he fired back. And that saved their lives because if he hadn't, they would have come down the side and shot them. And they ran, you know, brave fellows that they are. They just took off. And despite his bad back, he managed to lift my mom into the passenger seat, get in the car, and it started, believe it or not. And he managed to drive it a bit up the road to safety. And there was a police post not far away, and they'd heard the ambush. So they came down, uh, many of them with their weapons, and this time the terrorists had gone. And uh, they called a helicopter in and evacuated my mother to hospital. Uh, Peter, uh, just a question for you. So was it common practice for everybody, for the citizens, to carry to carry weapons? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And it yeah, was, yeah, yeah. So that was... Absolutely. Yeah, we carried guns all the time. And even for most of, uh, certainly the last four or five years of my life in South Africa, I carried a nine millimeter pistol on my hip all the time. And uh, it, ironically, we could walk into the bank with our pistols or even a rifle and the bank would be happy because it's another good guy with a gun inside to fight off the bad guys from outside. And it, it sounds incongruous in the peaceful climate we live in in Canada, mm. but... If I went to a government office in a um, major city, 
I would walk in the front door with my gun and there would be a series of little safes there, gun safes. And they would say, put your weapon in there and here's a, take the key. And then I'd go and do my business, whichever office I needed, come back and walk in and take my gun, give them the key back and off I'd go. Even the airport, we could check our pistol in at the airport and the, it would go in the cockpit, we'd get it the other end. Yeah, it was quite different to life here. My goodness. And, and it was all, did you need permits for those out of curiosity? I yeah, yeah, we, we had, and, and in fact, it was a little tighter than, than here in Canada. We had to have a, a, a firearm license that was called for each weapon. Okay. So you couldn't just get you couldn't just get a long gun license and have ten rifles. Each one had to be recorded and the number kept. And it it was it was such a low expense that it didn't even register on the government budget. And that was before the days of computerization. But they with their files they managed to find out if a gun went missing they would trace the owner. So yeah, the system worked. Oh, interesting. Thank you for that. So let's carry on. So your mom was sure. at the hospital and she. She survived. She survived. Yeah, but um, she was in a pretty bad way because mm-hmm. the, this bullet had gone right through and taken a big chunk out of her um, right hip. It had gone up, sort of skidded around her pelvis. They think it was an armor-piercing round. Uh, they thought it might have gone in and damaged her bladder, but it didn't. Uh, the problem was it had taken so, shattered so much bone they couldn't give her an artificial hip. There was not enough bone left for it, and the nerve was gone. And they told her she'd never walk again. They also said, um, now, I must tell you that Rhodesia had a lot of experience with uh, gunshot and landmine wounds. So they said to her, you're probably going to get an embolism, and if we're not careful, it'll kill you. A piece of bone gets or fat goes into the bloodstream. Yeah. So they gave her a 24-hour nurse, and they knew that it would happen in, I think it's between 32 and 48 hours or something, and the nurse was waiting for it to happen. And when it happened, she was able to resuscitate my mother and get her heart going again, and and she survived that. So that was August. Um, My dad phoned uh, to tell us about it, and, and that was strange in itself because he didn't like... It was back in the days when you had to book a long-distance call. You couldn't just dial there. So he had to book it through the operator. And he, he was he was always a bit impatient. So my mother always did the phoning. And she'd chat and then she'd put my dad on the phone. So that night, I think it was evening, my dad phoned. And I thought, this is odd. And he says, I've got some bad news. So I thought it might be my brother. He was in the military and because he was younger than me, he was doing 12 months, uh, a second tour of 12 months continuous service. Um, and he said, no, it's your mum. We got ambushed and uh, she's been badly hurt. So I said, well, I must fly up. He said, no, she doesn't want you to. She's okay. She survived. She's had surgery. Uh, there's nothing you can do. And she would worry if you came up. So I said, okay. So we kept in touch and um, she stayed in that hospital bed from August to the 30th of December that year. So it's four months. And then my dad was on his way to visit her for New Year. Uh, he'd been to see her on Christmas Day. And he ran into a second ambush. The terrorist pushed a bus across the road and he came around the corner. He didn't have time or, or space to turn around and he couldn't get his gun out in time. So I think it was four terrorists walked up to the front of the car while he was trying to turn, shot him through the windshield. And that was it. Yeah. So uh, that was my dad gone on his way to visit my mum. So, so Peter, what was the purpose of these ambushes? What were they after? Okay, they were trying to make the country ungovernable and they weren't succeeding. They were 
trying to tie up the defence forces and they weren't succeeding. We we won the, the war on the ground convincingly. Uh, they didn't manage to overrun a single farmhouse, for instance, in all the, all the attacks on farmhouses. They did kill a lot of innocent civilians, mainly black, in the tribal areas. They put uh, bombs in supermarkets. They put landmines on the road. They wanted to take the country over, um, which they ultimately did because we came under pressure from – we had been under pressure for years. That's why we declared universal – we declared independence unilaterally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted power. It was all about power. The fact that they were killing more black people than white was irrelevant. They just wanted power. So, but in that particular incident, they they were robbing the passengers on the bus and beating them up to intimidate them, and they were forcing the passengers to push the bus over the cliff. And uh, yeah, so there was a lot of theft going on. They were uh, they were abducting school children from mission schools and forcing them across the border to Mozambique to act as sex slaves and child soldiers. It was, it was horrific. But as I say, mainly. Uh, most of the violence was directed against the the black population, not the white people. Oh, yeah, my goodness, how horrifying. And of course, then you get wind of the fact, you, you were notified, of course, about what happened to your father. Yeah, um, we'd been out, my wife at the time and my kids were quite small. We'd been out and uh, came back and then the phone went and it was my father-in-law and I thought, ah, that doesn't sound good. And I immediately, again, thought it was my brother. He'd been ambushed a couple of times in the military and survived. And he said, no, it's, I'm afraid it's your dad, and he's dead. So we got on to the Rhodesian consulate the next morning, and uh, they were really good, really organized. They said, we will fly you up for your funeral. Um, Do you need to take your wife? I said, I've got to take my kids. There's no one uh, I can leave them with. So they got tickets within a day, air tickets organized for us to fly up. So we flew up and uh, my mother hadn't been out of hospital all that four months, but she insisted on getting in a wheelchair to go to my dad's funeral. So we <clears throat> we took her there and then we took her back to hospital. And then, of course, my brother and I had to go to their house and we had to take our weapons and we had a police escort to go there. And then he, bought, he organized a, a big truck. He was given leave, compassionate leave from the military for a couple of weeks. We loaded all their stuff, their furniture, all their possessions. He took it back to the house he was living in on a farm when he wasn't in the army. Mm-hmm. And our two horses, my brother's horse and my horse, had, we'd left with the parents. So we had to organize to get them lifted, transported back to his farm, which was about 200 kilometers away. Uh, so we did all that. And then my mom said, I've got to get out of here, you know. And she didn't give up. I mean, there she is. She's, she's lost her husband. She's lost her mobility. She, they had no money. She's got no income. And the country's going down the tubes. But she didn't give up. And uh, we managed to get her into St. Giles Rehabilitation Center. As I said earlier, with, with the terrorist war, Rhodesia was an acknowledged expert in gunshot and landmine treatment. So we got her in there and they started her in the swimming pool. They, they had a crane system where they could pick people up in their chair and lower them into the water and started her walking with two assistants there. Mm-hmm. And then they fitted a, this plastic caliper onto her legs. What happened with no nerve, her foot would, would drop. So the caliper kept her, her foot upright and she started walking with two crutches very slowly. And then, uh, two canes and then one cane and then no canes, uh, just the caliper. And uh, that was in 1979 when she was uh, 50, early 50s and she lived till she was 90 and uh, on her own right till the end. And um, 
she eventually got walking. Yeah. So, so after the, so this happened in 1979. Yep. All in 1979. And then following your dad's passing, your mom decided to, to go to uh, the UK. Much later, much later. What what happened, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe in 1980, so the terrorist war came to an end. Uh, there were still huge political problems, but there was the violence had gone. By, oh, there was crime, but the, it was much quieter. So my brother, my mother had a little bit of cash, and she helped my brother buy the small farm, 50 acres, but it had a nice cottage on it where she lived. And she stayed there. She moved and moved in there. I think she was two years at St. Giles and then so early eighties, she moved in there and she lived there to 2000 when the next wave of violence that we got caught up in came. And then she moved to England. Yeah. So, and she had an active life. The, there was a charity in South Africa called friends of Rhodesians and people like my mom, we had very few automatic vehicles in Rhodesia. So this charity would look for people who were handicapped in some way and go out and find an automatic transmission vehicle for them and modify it. So what they did with my mum's, they moved the gas and, and and brake pedal over to the left so she could use both pedals with her left foot. Uh, her hands were fine. And that was her transport. And um, she had that until she left. Yeah, so she was mobile. Oh, my goodness. What an incredible story. So after she left, she decided... That's it. I, I'm, I have to get out of here. But you remained. Well, we went back because I stayed in South Africa to 94. And then for all sorts of reasons, business, marriage, political, I moved back to Zimbabwe and I met Sue, my current partner. And we took over her late parents' farm and we were farming there until the next wave of violence when they wanted to get rid of all the farmers. And But so in 2004, we came to Canada, yeah. But that's that's another story. <laughs> it is another story, and we will save that for our next um, our next podcast video. Uh, yeah, I just want to finish off, if I may. Absolutely, go ahead. As I put in the book, um, and it's it's really pertinent to what's happening right now, where people, yeah, and you can get that on my website, peterwrightsblog.com, dot um, where many people are, are really distressed about the lockdown and you know, being shut off, at, shut in their houses and not knowing what's going to happen and, and this, you know, we went through some fairly tough times and life goes on. And my mother's example, she didn't give up. She'd lost everything and uh, she didn't give up. And um, my brother helped her, uh, but she went out looking after old people in the retirement village near where she lived. She did a lot of work with the church. And even when she went to England, um, she was still helping old people and uh, and just kept going. You know? So she was a great example. So I'm saying message I want to give everyone is don't give up. Just, just hang in there. Oh, that's a wonderful message. And thank you so much for sharing that, Peter. I know that uh, that must've been hard for you to recount, but you do it so bravely and uh, articulately. So thank you for sharing that. And again, once again, for those who would like a copy of your book, how do they do that? And how do they connect with you personally should they want to do that? Okay. If they go to my blog, Peter writes blog with no apostrophe dot com, there's an order form for the book on the front page. It's only available in hard copy right at the moment, but it will be an ebook as well fairly soon. It's not on Amazon. I have copies left. I'll be getting a reprint. If you want to contact me, Peter at peterwritesblog.com and I'll answer your questions. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Kathleen.